Start jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast sheet. Aye, shield. sir. Bring us in closer. Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive. Extreme magnification. Aye, sir. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. The experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. We should be able to hear the magnetic resonance field. it, ladies and gentlemen. The edge of time and space where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the event horizon. And it's it's delightful. Oh. And I've looked in the back and yes. uh, uh, so you write novels for elementary, which well, we could we could in a friendly manner argue Sherlock Holmes because I'm a traditionalist. I can't bring myself to watch the show. So you can oh, sell me wow. on that. Okay. And um, and some comics, and we'd like you to yes. talk about, you know, whatever other work you've done and whatever else you've got coming up as well. And we yeah, both live in Los Angeles, and we're very familiar with the... Um, oh. We, yeah, we live... We live <laughs> I, hope, uh, I haven't made any mistakes. Oh, no. No, no. Actually, no. No, no glaring ones. No. No, okay. not really. None that made me go, oh, that's real wrong. No, you did, you did your research very well. Oh, okay. That's good to hear. Actually. And it's it's an alternate universe, so anything. Well, you know. exactly. That's, yeah. yeah. So let's get the show started, and uh, I'll read the intro and introduce you, and uh, away we'll go. Cool. Good morning, or afternoon, or evening, whatever is relevant for the part of the world you are in. Indeed, welcome to the event horizon where the impossible happens. Join us each week at this time as we journey into the realms of science fiction, fantasy, and science fact in all their forms. I'm your host, Gene Turnbow. With me is my co-host, Susan Fox. Hello, sweetheart. <laughs> and today, we are talking to Adam Christopher... The author of Made to Kill, a rollicking good Chandler-esque read. And and the ironic part is Chandler hated science fiction with, with, with the, the flame of a thousand suns. And you make science fiction happen in, in this book in, in several aspects. So And the book is from Tor Books. Tor, Welcome. our favorite Tor books. Welcome to the show. We're glad to have oh, you with us. Hello. How are you doing? <laughs> So, um, I started early. I I, yeah. I shot my I, my first volley. Well, it's a rollicking good read. If you oh, like, okay. if you like, you know, um, noir mysteries, read it. If you like robots, read it. If you like uh, conspiracy theories, read it. I just uh, uh, I just heard sort of a robotic Humphrey Bogart in my head as I read <laughs> as I read the. Uh, it's it's all written from the first person, you know. Which is an interesting, uh, and it's it's got some interesting bumps in it, you know, because the robot has this uh, has this disability. He has a limited memory. He does. So, um, what got you started with the idea, and um, uh, how did it evolve into the book that it became? 
Well, it really uh, goes back to what you were just saying before about how Raymond Chandler really hated science fiction. Um, in 1953, he wrote to his agent, you know, complaining about science fiction and saying that he couldn't believe that people pay money for this kind of stuff. And he wrote in this letter a kind of um, hundred-word pastiche of science fiction. It was you know, complete nonsense. He was just making it up. But the thing is it was still Raymond Chandler. It's still his voice. And even though it doesn't really make any sense, and it talks about pink pretzels and a computer called Google and the sun setting over Alderaan or something, Alderaan, Alder Baron, I think, um, it's like, it's, it's kind of cool. And that gave me the idea that what if he was actually kind of fishing with his agent, trying to sound him out about science fiction? So from that... I wrote um, a kind of novelette, which is like, you know, a short, a long short story or a very short novel called Brisk Money, uh, which takes the name from the letter. And Brisk Money is about a robot called Ray, who uh, he's, the, he's the last robot in the world. And um, he and his computer are sent out into, into the world to kind of exist as a, as a private detective. Um, and a kind of independent, you know, robot independence. They need to make money. Mm-hmm. And in Brisk Money, Ray discovers that actually his computer, Ada, has uh, done a spot of reprogramming and turned him into an assassin uh, because you can make more money, you can make more profit being a hitman. So that's kind of, that was the first uh, glimpse at the world of Ray and Ada. And I guess, uh, so Brisk Money went up on tour.com um, so you can read it for free online. And from there, I kind of realized that I had this whole uh, world of Ray and Ada. And, you know, it's 1960s Hollywood. Obviously, it's a kind of alternate universe because there were robots. Or at least there were robots. You know, Ray is the last one. Mm-hmm. Robots have come and gone. Uh, people didn't really like them, it turns out. Um, so, yeah, so then I had this idea, um, which turned into a trilogy of novels of which... Uh, made to kill is the first one. Oh, and boy. it's fun. It's a lot of fun. It is a lot of fun. I um, and you have you lived in Los Angeles or have you visited Los Angeles? I have. Yes, no, I visited. Um, <clears throat> and in fact, because this whole thing is like a Raymond Chandler. You know, what if Raymond Chandler had written a science fiction novel? Um, you know, he set all his detective stories in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. yeah, Hollywood. Um, that kind of area. So really, obviously, I had to set it there because that's a, you know that's what he would have done. Mm-hmm. Um, the book is set in the you know far distant future of 1965 um, because it's kind of he I you know he died in, the, in 58 or 59 and I think he he probably would have set something not too far ahead. Mm-hmm. Um, it's you know because he wanted he would have wanted to uh, stay on certain ground. And yeah, things exactly. have changed that a great deal by, you know, even by 1980. And by oh, yeah, no, 2015, right. he would have found the place <laughs> unrecognizable. Yeah. Uh, so definitely had to have that kind of period um, feel to it. Uh, you know, and you mentioned before about it being sort of 
Humphrey Bogart because it's mm-hmm. first person, and again, it's written in that kind of Chandler-esque style of first person. You know, Ray, uh, Ray the robot is very much Philip Marlowe type character, and, and the um, turns of phrase. You know, it's just just <laughs> well, classic Philip Marlowe. It's like this is yeah, this I, is the fire. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Like, so, yeah, as I was writing it, you know, obviously mm-hmm. I'm not trying to copy Raymond Chandler or, yeah, because that's pointless, you know, why do right. that? That's Raymond Chandler, he's a genius. Mm-hmm. Um, but I kind of had to get into that kind of mode of writing, which is a particular style and a particular kind of voice. Like, I, I, I hid in a shadow the more... deep enough to take a bath in. Right. So it's just but, those wonderful phrases. And it's like the more ridiculous I made them, mm-hmm. the kind of better it got. Yeah, and I really yeah. pushed myself. And things I'd, I'd be reading, you know, obviously reread all the Chandler stories again and again, and I would forget details, and then I'd come across something which was like, you know, as um, inconspicuous as a tarantula on a fairy cake. It's like so. <laughs> it's, it's 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 crazy, but uh-huh. it really works. So when I was writing, I kind of had to really push push myself to like be like go out there and do those kind of comparisons and similes. But like going back to your question about have I lived in LA? Uh, no, I haven't. I visited and I used the locations that he used in his novels mm-hmm. in the book. So in fact, Ray the Robot and Philip Marlowe share an office uh, in the same building. Um, <laughs> That's great. I might actually put that That's in great. somewhere. I wonder if I can drop that into book two or something. That would be quite funny. Um, but like yeah, the, so like, like I make pack. sure that I get enough of the mm. actual uh, locations and places and things, just enough that it's not, a, it's, you know, it's, it's not, you don't need to paint a kind of complete photographic kind of picture because people, whenever you read a book, no matter where it's set or when, you know, you have your own preconceptions and ideas of what mm-hmm. it should look like. I encountered this with the elementary books, which are set in New York, and it's like, everybody knows New York, even if you've never been there. So the reader's mind kind of fills in the details. So it's the same with the the L.A. trilogy and Made to Kill. Uh, it's 60s Hollywood. There are certain landmarks and famous locations, and the geography is kind of right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but right like, enough. It's not, it's, yeah, it's not, yeah, it's not important that it's, like, totally accurate, because, again, it's an alternate universe, and the reader's... Um, the reader's imagination can kind of fill it in, which is that's how I read, and I think that it really works. Well, and uh, you know, to be fair, uh, Los Angeles is such a big place that not even the people who live here know it well enough to say, "Oh, I, that's you know, that's two blocks further west or whatever." You know, like a handful of people might, but most most won't. That's that's like, what we get for trying to watch American television. And and live here because one, you know, in one moment they're driving down one street, and then another moment they're driving down another. Oh, yeah. We know the difference. <laughs> yeah, we had some friends from New Zealand who complained loudly about the uh, Lord of the Rings pictures. Oh, we go to that park all the time. It just took me out of the story. I said, "Yeah, <laughs> welcome to my life, yeah. Bunky." Yeah. And the uh, the the atmosphere, the glamour. Of, uh, of Hollywood in that era. I think you captured it perfectly. Oh, thank you. I mean, again, you know, it's, it's, um, there's no real movie star. I mean, there's so, no uh, actual movie stars, but you certainly no. had the types. Yeah. So in the, yeah, in the story, Ray gets involved with this conspiracy where, uh, you know, a movie star comes with a bag of gold asking him to take out another movie star and he uncovers this kind of big kind of conspiracy. So absolutely, it's that kind of glitz and glamour and, 
and bright lights and late nights kind of thing. Um, you know, oh, not not old school Hollywood because that's sort of going back even further, but definitely a certain era. Um, yeah. Again, slightly different in the book. I think in the book, the studio system is kind of in control, whereas I, whereas in our world it had shifted to the star system, so whereby the stars kind of made the movies and went around the studios instead of the studios controlling everything. Oh, by the that 60s? Was, uh, well, well, certainly in the 50s, they it was still heavily star system. 60s was beginning to move away from that, but I'd still, yeah. I'd still buy it. Yeah, and I mean, thinking about, you know, Raymond Chandler, what would he have known? Well, I mean, he obviously he worked in movies mm-hmm. yeah. um, as, a, as a screenwriter. It's, um, uh, but the, the, as I was saying, the atmosphere is just caught perfectly. And the, oh. um, you know, the, the whole, uh, the whole sequence with the Hollywood sign and what that's like and, you know, being up there. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Getting kicked out of there, which every teenager <laughs> did at some point. That took some research, actually. Oh. <laughs> Should have asked I us. Was, uh, yeah. You know. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's the Hollywood sign has been, is, uh, is a, a historical landmark here, and of course, and uh, uh, you know it's undergone its renovations, and bits of it were destroyed. <laughs> That's right, exactly. You know, never yeah. to return. It used to say Hollywood Land, and was put up by real estate developers. Yeah, and became the the icon it is today. So, so um, in the book, I kind of repair it a, little, a bit more. I put the light bulbs back in. Well, thank uh, you, thank you for that. Because they used that to have that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think they have. Uh, I think they just have floodlights. Yeah, now. it's a reflective surface, which yeah. really is more economical, and and then well, they can change the colors more easily. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, um, th- I one of the things that uh, that struck me was that. Uh, uh, Unlike most stories about robots, especially first-person stories about robots that I've read, um, uh, Ray... I'm uh, surprised his last name wasn't Gunn. Ray Gunn. Raymond (laughs) Electromatic. What a wonderful name. Uh, he, He can only remember events going back 24 hours. Right. Uh, And he has a tape in his chest that runs out. Um, yes. <laughs> now, <coughs> that certainly jibes with my recollections of the sixties. <laughs> well, you were out of tape. Yeah. You were out of tape. You got to yeah, start over. Ray is state of the art sixties technology. This is the peak of of computerization, uh, which means he has a miniaturized tape, which is a marvel of the modern age. And then, of course, it runs out after twenty four hours because it's just, <laughs> it's, that's all it can hold. <laughs> And um, but he also has uh, some sort of long-term memory. Yes. So yeah, he's kind of he's he has a template, um, which is based on his creator, the uh, Professor Thornton, who is kind of mentioned here and there in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and you find out a bit about the backstory of, of the whole robot kind of industry that grew up in the 50s and then it kind of went away and Ray is the last one um, so yeah he's, so he's inherited memories and mannerisms and personality probably from Professor Thornton who used his own mind as a template so yeah he wakes up every morning not remembering what happened the day before but he still retains the basic um, identity and, and sense of self and 
you know, fundamental, you know, he can speak English, he can drive a car, he knows where he is, he's, you know, um, that kind of thing. The so, the memory tape is, is, that's kind of, I think it's mentioned in the book somewhere, that's stored separately. Mm-hmm. Um, the tape is, is the 24-hour thing, which is handy being he's an assassin, so it's like the perfect alibi. He can go and kill someone and then he won't remember it. Susan and I were talking about that very thing just the other night, you know, discussing the story and yeah, um, yeah, how how handy it is that he has <laughs> no recall of what he did the 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 day previous. Yeah, right. but but does you know does law apply to him? He's has the you know legal status of a toaster. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Uh, and also, there's the fact that all the memory tapes are stored. There's a storeroom. Um, if you only Ada knows, sorry, I say only Ada knows where that is. Yeah, and he knows because he puts the tapes there, but then he forgets. Mm. Um, in Brisk Money, the prequel, there's kind of a little bit about the storage room because obviously the fact that he can't remember what he's done is how he's reprogrammed to be a killer instead of a detective. Um, you know, one program overriding the other. But it's an interesting questions like what. Is he really legally culpable? And what happens if those tapes were ever to fall into the, you know, the wrong hands? Which in this case um, could be law enforcement. That's right, yeah. There's a guy, uh, Ray has an encounter on a rooftop in the book with this special agent, um, Touch Daly, who, uh, yeah, he knows something about Ray and Ada and about what they're doing. Mm. And it's just brief, the briefest scene, but I think you'll see more of, of the agents. I shall reveal no more. All right, all right. We, we, we shan't pry, but uh, we are looking forward to the, the second and third in this trilogy. Oh, thank okay. you. It, Made to Kill is a good, fast, exciting read. And a yeah, bit, yeah. And a bit um, short, yes. you know, because I... I, I I want it to be in that world so much that I want there to be more of the book. <laughs> well, you know, that wouldn't be authentic. Yeah, would the, it? The, the book is uh, the book is the right length for for what it's meant to be, but uh, my personal my personal drive is uh, that I want more of it. <laughs> well, you know, you got to leave them leave them hanging. Yeah, um, it's yeah. Again, the length um, it's kind of typical of that kind of mystery novel of the 50s and 60s. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, people have, people have kind of emailed me saying, I really enjoyed the book. I read it in two hours on a Saturday afternoon. It's that kind of Which book. Which is perfect. It's, it's one like, you can bring to your relative's house and sit in the corner and, you know, spend yeah, time. Yeah. <laughs> Happy Christmas to you. <laughs> <laughs> and the other thing, yes, it's, it's fast and it's fun, but it's not funny. It's not a comedy novel. No, not at all. Uh, but it has a kind of a lightness to it. Uh, which I think is, you know, because you're seeing the world through Ray's eyes and Ray has a certain deadpan personality, um, uh, which is well, fun. Which goes with his face, you know, because he doesn't move. Right. And it's literally made of metal. <laughs> it is. So, a little um, stone face, huh? Yeah. yeah so, so, um, so let's hear about your other work. 
Sure. What else are you doing well, now? What else have you done before? I see comics in your past. I see novelizations yeah. from television in your past. Now, I am a rather strict Sherlock Holmes old old school, and I could not even bring myself to watch Elementary. And okay. frankly, the the you know the British Sherlock series was a stretch. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm a I'm an old school Sherlock Holmes fan as well, uh, and I have been kind of the two things I grew up with were Sherlock Holmes and Doctor Who. Yeah, well, so hearing I hear that. Yeah, so Elementary uh, is kind of interesting because it's not really Sherlock Holmes in that. Okay, there's the kind of basics of the of the characters and the background, and over the series they do borrow kind of a little bit of plot and a little maybe a character name, but they they make something new, and it's really best viewed, I think, especially to people who like are unsure or haven't watched it. Like, it's just a really peculiar detective show. Uh, yeah, the BBC Sherlock is much more based on the the Arthur Conan Doyle canon. Was elementary kind of does its own thing, but that's also why I love elementary because it's it's kind of half Sherlock Holmes, half something else entirely. Um, and as a fan of the show, I got you know I got the opportunity to write some novels. Um, they're not novelizations of TV episodes; they're original stories. That was my next question. <laughs> yeah, so they're set within the series. Oh, they might look uh, at your stories and go, what a good idea. Well, technically, they're kind of canon. Um, well, there's a kind of weird thing where I have to make sure that I don't really impact the TV series because, you know. Mm, yeah. Uh, which is kind of interesting because I, I obviously I do an outline and it gets approved by CBS, the TV network. And huh, sometimes I've said, oh, you, know, you can't use that character or perhaps do something else here. And I know then that something is going to be happening at some point. Because, of course, they won't tell me anything. No, right. they um, can't. But, uh, yeah, so the first book came out this year uh, in April, so it's called The Ghost Line, and mm. then the second one is called Blood and Ink, and that's coming out in April next year. And there's a third one, which I'm just working on at the moment, uh, which I think is 2017? Uh, not sure. You have a gift. I can't tell you what that one's called yet. You so. have a gift for snappy titles. Those are really good. <laughs> the Ghostland sort of was there straight away. Blood and Ink, that took a long time. Uh, I really love, I like to work with a title. I find even though the title will change, it does something to the story as I'm writing it. And it will change and it will be the wrong title, but I kind of need to have it. And that title, man, that was weeks. I was like, you know, it has a huge list with my editor. I'm like, what are we going to call this thing? Um, well, you've got a guiding star, you know. I do, yeah. The third title is really cool too, although I can't see what it is. Rats. Okay, what well, <laughs> The third again, title is rats. You know, the, the idea with the books is yeah, that if you like it. elementary, if you like elementary, you can read the books and you get basically it's like they're like kind of the two part season finale special type thing, you know, because obviously mm. the book is longer than a TV episode. Sure. Um, you know. They're also written in such a way that you could potentially read them without really knowing what elementary is because it has the kind of the basics in there for you to pick up. I mean, here's Sherlock Holmes. He lives in New York. That's all you need to know. So, um... You're going to make me watch that show, aren't you? You should try it. It's, it's like, yeah, give it a go. Come on. All right. See if it's on Hulu or whatever. 
Well, that's yeah. an accomplishment. Yeah, that is I mean, an she, accomplishment. She really, she really I have railed against this show for <laughs> so long. So for you to talk her into that, that's something. It's just really, it's cool. Yeah. So, um, mostly I want to read your book. <laughs> the, uh, I, I, I absolutely love the idea of uh, Raymond Electromatic, um, you know, and the, this whole world and the fact that, you know, Raymond Chandler wrote so many books. Uh, um, and um, you have the potential of doing the very same. And it's just, it's a wonderful, delicious, um, you know, uh, crunchy nougat sort of world. Oh. It's a... <laughs> That's a compliment okay. from him, yeah, honestly. Cool. <laughs> you know, it, it's 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 like um, it's like finding that uh, uh, that special candy you like in the candy box, but, but you've lost the label, so you have to try each one, <laughs> and you find the one you like. It's like that. Well, yeah, and if you go to uh, the LA Trilogy dot com, there's a whole bunch of sort of extra bits and pieces. For the book, mm-hmm. uh, just some fun things, but there's also the novelette for the money. Um, so yeah, if you want, you need to kind of wait until writing it down. Trilogy. Com. It's like a trailer and there's some newspaper stuff. Yeah. So, how did you get into writing in the first place, and what was your what was the path you took? Um, I kind of I always have written. Um, from a very young age, and in fact, I've got kind of books from from primary school where I was writing mainly Doctor Who stories, actually. Because was on, t- I'm from New Zealand, and it was on TV, and I'd kind of write what I saw on TV, which I suppose is not a bad way to learn, actually. Um, and then I kind of I kept in that, and then I went to university and kind of dropped out a little bit of that because I got, you know, busy with other things. And I always thought that I really needed to write. And it was kind of this burning kind of thing at the back of my mind. So I, yeah, I, I kind of started writing again. Um, and I I wrote, I kind of, I wrote a novel. There's, there's a publisher, I moved to get, so to cut a long story short, I moved from New Zealand to the UK where I now live. And while I was moving, there was a publisher that had an open submission uh, window, which you know it doesn't always happen. So I thought, ah, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll send in my grand magnum opus because it's amazing, and obviously I'll get a book deal. And I moved, and then as soon as I, and then I got the response, it's like, well, of course it was rejected because it was terrible. It was like it was awful. But that was actually the kind of kick I needed. I was like, oh yeah, I need to actually take this seriously if I want to do it properly. You know, it has to be my number one kind of thing. So from that moment onward, I kind of sat down and I started writing and I I wrote another novel which I immediately just put away in a drawer because I was trying to teach myself, you know, can I write a 100,000-word story that is logical and entertaining and informative? Because that's... I didn't know if I could do it, really. So I wrote that novel and then I wrote another one and another one and another one. I would just finish and then start the next one. Um, and the, the second and third ones I wrote uh, were called Seven Wonders and Empire State, and they uh, were sold to Angry Robot um, in 2012, I think. 2011. It came out in 2012. Uh, that was kind of the start. So it was four books with Angry Robot, 
um, and then with Tor, I initially sold a space opera trilogy, uh, the first of which is called The Burning Dark. Um, the third, there's two volumes of that are out, The Burning mm-hmm. Dark and The Machine Awakes. And then the third one is going to be, I think it's summer 2017. Um, so that's, yeah, you're working on that one now. Stuff, and then there's a comic as well. You're working on that one now then? Uh, yeah, it's kind of done. It needs, it needs some work, which I've scheduled in. Uh, for after next year, uh, after next year, after what I'm doing at the moment, I have like five things all at once. So I have a very complicated spreadsheet that tells me what I need to do. Um, and that's and that's yeah. essential if you want to, uh, you know, if you want to do this for for a living. Uh, oh, we were yeah, talking. Absolutely. We yeah. were talking to um, uh, Anderson. Um, the uh, I the. Uh, Oh, I'm going up. Uh, Brian, uh, Brian Herbert, and oh, and Kevin, Kevin Anderson. Kevin Anderson, that was it. Yep. And yep. Um, uh, we were talking to them, and they said that uh, at any given moment they have six books in the pipeline, right. six yeah. at once. Yeah, but Kevin can do that because he has he has like twelve brains. <laughs> I'm sure of it because he's he's just working a multi tracker. You know, but, but you have to kind of do that. Um, you know, so I have got, if I think about it, I've got two more robot books to do. Uh, one elementary book, the second of which will need an edit when it comes back from CBS. I've got the third space opera book to, fin- to edit properly. Um, I've got three, I've got, sorry, I've got t- two of an unannounced series which I've got to write, the first of which is going to come back with an edit, um, as well as writing one comic, uh, co-writing with Chuck Wendig, um, which is The Shield, and then I've got two more unannounced comics next year, plus a collaboration. So, yeah, it's like there's a lot on, and there's no way that you can just kind of wing it. You have to plan and schedule, like kind of any job, I guess. Um, You know, I, I work... Monday to Friday, nine to five, um, and I kind of try and fit it all in. Uh, that that's uh, um, kind of gives you hope. It does, it? yeah, it does. <laughs> you know, I, for for those for those listening. Um, well, yeah, I mean, you know, I wrote the first novels that I wrote. You know, I was working full time, so I got up at five in the morning and I wrote two thousand words, and then when I got home, I write I wrote two thousand words before dinner, and I just kept kind of doing that. Um, and yeah, it's like the whole thing of like, what's the secret to writing? It's like you just need to write, <laughs> and you you know everybody has got twenty four hours a day, so you find the time. If it's important, you'll find the time, which is kind of easy to say, but you know you can do it. People can do it. Persistence is the key, I think. It's been said a lot that uh, not many writers. Um not many published writers actually make a living from it, and uh, I think that's probably why. You know, it's it's the <coughs> yeah, no, that's right. And also, it's like it takes a long time unless mm-hmm. you hit on that magic formula for a bestseller kind of straight away. You know, which people do. That's mm-hmm. that's not impossible. Um, it takes a long time. You you build it up. You know, that you have one book out, you have two books out, you have a comic out. The thing was, the thing was. I like about writing, I've got kind of three strands of writing. So I've got comics, I've got novels like Made to Kill, 
and the LA trilogy. And then I've got the tie-in stuff like elementary. So they're kind of three different strands of writing and three different types of writing, um, which kind of keeps me busy. And, and it's, it's, I can, when I, when I change from one to another, it's kind of like a good break for my brain, uh, which is handy. <laughs> oh, that's good. It's the organization of it, you know, that strikes me. That uh, that it is com- a complex enough thing that it has to be treated like uh, like any other desk job, you know. Yeah, and it's complete. It's a peculiar desk job, absolutely. And because you know, you're creating stuff out of kind of nothing, <laughs> but mm. you. Oh, I don't know. To... Writing committee reports sometimes you just make <laughs> pulling stuff out of the air. Right. Well, there you go. <laughs> Susan works for Hollywood News Calendar, and it's uh, it is a uh, publication for um, publication for uh, stringers and paparazzi and oh, and, okay. and, yeah, and genuine news services. And genuine well. news news outlets too. Thank you very much. Right. Yes, <laughs> yes, mostly them. And um, uh, and she does listings of events that happen all you know in Los Angeles and in, and in New York that would be of interest to these outlets, and that I would not enjoy going to because I can't stand <laughs> Hollywood parties. Oh, and and <laughs> the writing that she does for them is, is very much it's like very that. straightforward. It's uh, but I'm not making stuff up. Thank you. And I do know where they are. I do have yeah, the true. addresses. <laughs> so yes, if you uh, if you ever need to, to know about a specific geometry or you know yeah. places where places where the uh, the where things are or were, we'll be happy to consult on this because oh, we worked through through the era you're writing about. You know, we lived here. Yeah. The bones of of uh, old Hollywood were still up when we were in college. Right. Not oh. so much now. No. Though Pickfair Studio is still here, and it's still in operation. Well, it's Raleigh Studios now, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I think it's... Yeah, I've been on that one. I th- no, Raleigh is different. No, what was Raleigh then? Well, uh... Well, we'll figure yeah, it out Yeah, I'll figure later. it out later, but Pickfair was uh, Mary Pickford and, and uh, Douglas Fairbanks. Pickfair was their house. Oh, um, yeah, well, they had a studio as well. Mm. And I, I know this because I did a... Uh, I, I did a... Um, Rick's, I worked on a Rick Springfield music video there. <laughs> it was Human Touch. I did. I did some of the props and oh, that's effects right. for that's that. Right. Okay. So <laughs> now there's a sci-fi guy you don't hear enough about. Rick Springfield. Oh yeah. Yeah. Every, all all died in the first reel of Battlestar Galactica. I mean, that's you know. <laughs> you know do you watch? Uh, do you watch a lot of television? I mean, um, you know, apart from Doctor Who and Sherlock Holmes, obviously. Uh, yeah, I do actually, um, and I think that well, I think that comes from Doctor Who as well because mm-hmm. I kind of grew up with TV science fiction more than kind of books. Mm-hmm. Uh, I my introduction to kind of science fiction literature was raiding my dad's kind of bookshelves because he had Arthur C. Clarke and Isaac Asimov and oh yeah uh, that kind of thing. Yeah, so that was the first time I read. But yeah, no Doctor Who, and then from there, kind of. You know, I grew up in the 80s, so it was the A-Team and Knight Rider and MacGyver and <laughs> Battlestar oh, yeah. Galactica and uh, I, I don't know, I hesitate to call it a golden age of TV because I've watched some MacGyver recently and it's probably not as good as I remember. <laughs> but but the, No, it kind of was because you uh, it was post-Star Wars, yes. so suddenly they were 
all everybody was wanted to be first to be second and you had your re, you had your Galactica and your yeah. re, remake of Buck Rogers because they oh, couldn't Buck be Rogers, bothered yeah. to come up with yeah. their own new concept. But, yeah, but like it's all about adventure and excitement and telling a good story mm-hmm. and yeah. and uh, so I yeah, I grew up watching that and today I, I you know, my list of T V stuff that I watch is is lengthy. You know, I, I love things like Arrow and the Flash and Elementary, Person of Interest. Um, Wait, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. must be muscling in on your territory. <laughs> I kind of, I stopped watching that. Yeah? I watched about uh, one and a half seasons and I just sort of, a, it was a little bit too much shark, Too much shark jumping? Yeah. Too many jumping sharks. <laughs> I love, it's funny because I love the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you know, um... And I love the way that that show tied into things like Captain America and the Avengers, yeah. but it was just not quite working for me. I was um, just the coincidence of names. That's all. You were working on a comic called Sh- The Shield, I know. right? The Shield. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Our The Shield, The Shield, uh, predates Captain America. Um, that character actually came first. Captain America is a copy of The Shield. <laughs> oh, there we go. Is it really? Yeah, and in fact, this is like, and this is only, I only say this because, you know, the person that comes second place always kind of has to explain the story because it's not very interesting. But <laughs> Captain America's shield was shield shaped originally. Yes, I remember seeing that. Yeah, and that was a copy of the shield. The shield. So I can't uh, MLJ or something. I can't remember. It was it was not Archie Comics at that time. It was called something else. They sued the publisher of Captain America, which I think was Timely Comics back mm-hmm. then, not Marvel or Timely. Uh, they sued they sued them, and they Captain America had to change to a circular shield. Oh, was <laughs> that, that it? why? Yeah, that's fascinating. And, and then, we see that we see I that echoed no in the movie, don't we? And then Captain America became really popular and, and everyone forgot about the shield. So there you go. But we brought her back. Well, you know, you you pour over the public domain list, see what's up, see what you can embellish. And uh, and then there's uh, uh, Agent Carter. Agent Carter. It's, uh, oh, yeah. Oh, my God. I love that show. Yeah, it's that's, wonderful. Yeah. They're, they're, and again, you know, so I love... Uh, period setting, so period science fiction, period comics. Um, so that show was just like perfect for me. It was tailor made because it's it's and again it's like the first Captain America film was probably my favourite uh, because it's nineteen forties and it's all, and it felt like the nineteen forties, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, and it's funny because Agent Carter season two is going to be set in Los Angeles. So although it's it's before Made to Kill, sort of time-wise, um, that it's going to be really fascinating to see how they've kind of dressed it up. I'd like to find find out w- which locations they found the, off the outside of the, the the studio lot. Yeah, yeah. Some of that stuff is still around, but boy, do you have to look for it. Like, um, there's this place called Bronson Caves. <laughs> And uh, it's in Bronson Canyon, and it's uh, just inside of the uh, the Griffith Park po- property. And uh, oh, right. there's very there's, accessible. There's this cave in it, uh, which is actually just a tunnel. It's an old quarry, and uh, they cut they cut a tunnel in the side of the hill. Uh, I think for the purposes of using it for um, for serials and and uh, television and this kind of thing, it served oh. as the entrance to the Bat Cave. 
Oh. It was all through Star all Trek. Through. You know, half of the uh, yeah, Star the Trek. Republic the serials Republic used series. it. <laughs> uh, uh, I think, uh, but the Next Generation used it too. And I, I bring my Trekkie friends up there from out of town, going in, and that's the birthplace of Leonard James Akaar, and that's where Darmok and Jalad were at Tanagra, and 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 there's the Hollywood sign. So <laughs> you have to watch your angles on that location, but it's marvelous. Yeah. Wow. So, um, have you had much experience writing screenplays? Oh, you just took left turn there. Uh, no, I haven't actually. Not at all. Uh, yeah, comic, a comic script is basically a screenplay, kind of. It's a script. Mm-hmm. Uh, but obviously, that's, it's a different kind of format. Um, I'd love to have a go one day, I think. Yeah, it's probably finding the time. It's a very uh, different, uh, a very different structure. Very yes. different approach. Very, yes. very, um, you know, uh, march, uh, march to the uh, march to the beat of somebody else's drum in terms of how how the thing is structured. Yeah, and, and I kind of I had to do that a little bit with elementary because it still had to fit the format of a network TV show, mm-hmm. even though it's a book, which is why I kind of call it like a double episode because it has this, it has that kind of structure and beats of a sort of two part story. Mm-hmm. So you use um, the uh, use the concept of story beats. Oh uh, yeah, for that one particularly, yeah. And you do for actually you do for comics as well, um, especially because yeah, comics. Well, actually, like yeah, network TV. I'm kind of fascinated by it because it's in that it's, it has a, absolutely has a formula and a structure and you have to get it in within 42 minutes which is your commercial hour and like a comic is kind of fascinating as well because for The Shield we have 22 pages of story um, so you have to you have to get it in and it forces you to do things and, and, and use tricks and really like focuses you on the story and what needs to be there uh, you know, elementary, the novels were obviously a little bit more flexible because I had a, you know, whatever page count I wanted, but I still had to have that kind of pre-credit sequence and then Sherlock Holmes does something Sherlock Holmesy, and then there's a disaster, you know, that whole mm-hmm. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, and that's the difference, you know, I said I've got three kind of strands of writing because that tie-in fiction for elementary is a very particular type of writing. Mm-hmm. It's the same if you're writing like a Star Wars novel or a Doctor Who novel or a Star Trek novel. It has, there's a, people expect a certain thing, um, which is absolutely fine. Like, you know, you turn on TV to watch a network TV show as opposed to cable or something, you know. People want to see what the characters, what their favourite characters are doing that week. Doesn't matter about the story. They want to see Sherlock Holmes and Watson do their thing, which is kind of what I wanted for the book. You know, they have people have this. The characters are preloaded in their minds. Um, Even with different actors, they are the characters are the important part, or at least certain characters are. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Because well, you can watch anybody do Sherlock Holmes, and yeah. but boy, yeah, if you, no, if you the elementary is kind of it's a very particular. Like Johnny Lee Miller, who plays Sherlock Holmes, his performance on TV is magnificent. And if I got that wrong <laughs> in any way in the book, I boy, would you that. hear about it? Yeah. Oh no, you wouldn't believe it. But I, I kind of because I, because I love the show, I think I kind of got it. And I know, you know CBS were very happy. They're like, yep, you know, you know how to write elementary, which is exactly what they were looking for. It um, takes some love to really bring something between screen and and from from book to screen or screen to book, really. Right. Either way, exactly. Yeah. 
that's one of the uh, one of the signifying markers, I think, in uh, Made to Kill, is that uh, the whole thing just hangs together so well as a single piece, like it grew that way instead of just being sort of kitbashed together, as I've seen in other novels. Oh, and cool. um, uh, it, there is enough of it there that you can easily imagine opening your eyes and being in that world and having it make consistent sense, you know, just moment to moment. And I think that's one of the things that makes the book so appealing. Yeah, that's good to hear. Yeah, and that's the other thing. The fact that it's a trilogy where, uh, you know, there's going to be like an overall story arc that people can follow, but but each book is going to be independent. So you could potentially mm-hmm. pick up the first, the second one without having read the first. Mm-hmm. So to have the kind of foundations of the characters and the setting kind of nailed down like they are makes it a lot easier for me. Yeah, because it's, you know, moving to the second book... Uh, it's always a challenge. Mm-hmm. You got to make sure that you kind of recapture what's in the first book, and it's kind of. I had this with the space opera stuff I was writing. It's like I wanted to go back and change things in the world because I thought of a better way of doing things. I'm like, no, I can't because the first book is out, and um, I'm sure I'll probably come across that again. You kind of. Have, it's like you know. It's, it's it's to the point where that fictitious universe is set, and there's nothing I can do about it. Well, a lot of um, much bigger people than you have have run into that problem. Oh, well, absolutely. <laughs> and it's uh, it takes so much time, you know, to develop the world. And the longer the story arc that you have planned, the more time you have to spend uh, spend on the backstory before you write a single word of the actual work. We need to get your your fandom started, obviously, so we can have other people <laughs> keeping track of the minute. Oh, I need yeah, like a, I need a wiki or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh my God, a, a, a Raymond Electromatic cosplay. <laughs> Ooh, that'd be awesome. Oh, that would be yeah, and it would be so recognizable, you know, but potentially quite easy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, a trench coat and a hat and a kind of cardboard box. <laughs> do the trick, I think, because he's quite—he's that kind of sixties designs. He's very kind of chunky and um, uh, sort of a cross between the Jetsons and Futurama mm-hmm. type look. But now, now I can see that that faraway look in Gene's eyes that he wants to like take the cover <laughs> and make that mask. Oh man! And no, some I'm, hands to match. What and, you, I was—you uh, know—I was thinking more of a. Uh, uh, Get one of know, our more big of a, a, clunky friends. Yeah, more to... of a, 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 a hammered, you know, hand-hammered uh, metal face. Mm-hmm. You know, it's where it's been pounded out by hand, you know, because there couldn't have been that many electromatics. And then a, a, a hammer blows around the broken nose, <laughs> the cauliflower <laughs> ears. Oh, you, yeah, well, something like that. With real but, cauliflowers, uh, no, not. Real. But you know, but the idea of his face being uh, being a bronzed steel, yeah. you know, it's just uh, it's the way you write is so visual that the um, uh, that it's very easy to to imagine what things looked like and and how things were. And uh, like I was saying earlier, the delicious turns of phrase that <laughs> you know, a shadow so deep you could take a bath in it and. Things like that. Did he really uh, say that, or did you just make that up? Okay, that's That's actually in the book. It's kind of I can't remember if that's Chandler or me. I mean, I'm not that I took anything from Chandler, (laughs) but that's exactly the kind of thing that he Uh would have. Exactly. Yes, exactly the kind of thing. Um, Which is why I love Chandler. Mm -hmm. I mean, every single page is a surprise. 
uh, waiting. So um, when did you discover the idea of story beats and how big a revelation was it for you? Uh, mm, it's one of those things where I probably... I, I Was it in school? Was it a writing class? I don't think it was at school. The only, the only kind of formal writing I ever did was when I was sort of between the ages of six and nine. Um... And then I was on my own after that. So I think it's just something that I kind of worked out. And this is why when I decided that I'm going to be a writer, and it was kind of like, yeah, that's a decision. I'm going to be a writer. I want to do this. And I wrote that first novel, you know, 100,000 words, which I then locked away forever. Because when you write something of that length, you, you have to figure out how to do it and what works. And obviously I kind of, I mean, I, I'm a big reader, so I sort of think I know what makes a book but it's one of those things you don't really know until you start doing it um, and I'm sure that book is completely awful I've borrowed bits and pieces ideas from it you never throw anything away you always can recycle uh, things um, but yeah I mean scripting a comic is kind of very helpful because a comic is all the reader sees is dialogue you know the script is actually written for the artist because the artist tells the story, and then you, and then there's the dialogue. So um, that's kind of useful, and especially because for the shield, we write beat sheets. So we write an outline for each issue, and we, and we write a beat sheet, which really breaks it down. Um, and I'm absolutely sure that it has then kind of bled into writing prose novels. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I outline a novel. And it has a beginning, a middle, and an end, and it kind of has. I I do like a Excel sheet, which is mainly just a list of kind of things that happen, and I kind of populate it with the beginning, the middle, and the end, and then bits and pieces that I know have to happen. And I guess those are actually the beats, mm-hmm. uh, even though I'm not consciously saying this is the beat sheet and these are the story beats. If I know what's going to happen, the, the important bits. Um, spread across the whole kind of stories and I guess that's the story beats uh, but certainly yeah I've never I've never had any formal hmm. uh, um, writing so there there are um, there are established um, I can't remember the guy the name of the fellow who came up with the idea in the first place uh, but he wrote uh, a book called Save the Cat uh, yeah I've read that yeah yeah and it's uh, it outlines exactly what the story beats should be for any given type of story and um, um, so it's it's very specific so it's almost like a formula the way you you um, you construct a motion picture script you know you have to have the yes. inciting incident before page 10 um, the yeah. turning point of the story where everything has gone to sh- to <clears throat> um, Right in the middle, you know, and uh, and then you have the uh, uh, the dedication to do or die, you know, at the beginning of Act Three, and then you wrap everything up, you know. It's and all the all the scripts are set up the same way, and yeah. um, uh, the idea of story beats breaks this down even further and says these are the points you have to have, and that in Hollywood they look at the scripts and if it doesn't have these beats. You know, in in the places you expect them, they pass on your script. You know, because it's all it's all they expect this formula to be followed. Yeah. So, and also because the audience expects that as well. There's like an innate, an innate feeling for drama or drama or comedy or whatever. 
that people, even if they don't know it consciously, they expect it. Which is like I was saying with elementary, people who read the book were expecting to read an elementary TV show in book form mm-hmm. because elementary has rules and a template and a formula and the story beats happen in a certain way, like most network television does. Mm-hmm. Um, so I absolutely believe in giving people what they want um, and, yeah, following, especially, you know, you know Hollywood movies... Uh, I can totally imagine is very kind of strict on that. Mm. Because, sure, you can do something different, but it better be good. Yeah. It better be the best thing that has been made kind of thing. Um, it's the kind of thing like, you know, don't worry about rules of writing or grammar or anything. It's like, uh, but if you, you know, if you break those rules, you'd have to know what you're doing. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And apparently... Um, uh, let's see. Great reads from Indie Next List. Booksellers you trust. This is... Uh, uh, award-winning. Yes. You, your book is already award-winning. Wow. And it's only just out. <laughs> and yeah. uh, we, we've been told uh, by uh, Patty Garcia. Hello, Patty. If you're Hi. listening to this, um, that, uh, that for a book to make this great reads from Indie Next List... Uh, you know, this indie next list is extremely rare for a science fiction book, and it but is. but your yeah. book has made it. You know, it's on the list. Well, it's access- it certainly accessible to people who are new to science fiction or think they don't like it. <laughs> well, it's kind of interesting. You mean, you know, uh, I think Publishers Weekly said that it kind of will appeal to people who like science fiction and who also like mystery novels. It kind of because it straddles that kind of it does uh, in between thing. Yeah, and the indie indie next pick for December um, I can't remember how many books it is it might be 12 or 15 or something uh, yeah and Made to Kill is one of them uh, I couldn't believe it when I, I read the list the book above mine is Umberto Echo oh my <laughs> I was word like, okay so I'm on a list with Umberto Echo that's 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 fine I'll, I'll take that and yeah science fiction doesn't it doesn't really you know, kind of genre fiction crime Crime, mystery, science fiction, fantasy mm-hmm. doesn't really get a look in on the on the indie next. It does sometimes, but it's rare. Yeah. So yeah, I was like, oh my goodness, quite an accomplishment. And well, well done, you. Yes, oh, well you. done. <laughs> and on the back of the book, and it's this wonderful uh, uh, yellow and black and red uh, book cover. So when you look look for it, it looks like a book that would have been published in the '60s as well. You know, it's yeah, got this delightful. It's got, they did. They they got that that they got the whole vibe aesthetic. The yeah. entire the entire vibe goes all the way out from the printed page all the way out to the cover. And on the back in the lower corner, it has this little logo of a lightning bolt and a planet, oh, and it yeah. says a ray electromagnetic mystery, which implies that there are going to be a lot more of these, and we certainly hope there are. Uh, you have been listening to Krypton Radio's The Event Horizon. We have been speaking with Adam Christopher, author of Made to Kill from Tor Books, a ray electromatic mystery. Uh, thank you for joining us on this week's episode. Hey, thank you very much for having me. Thank you for joining us this evening for episode 121 of Krypton Radio's weekly production of The Event Horizon for December 5th, 2015, with your hosts, Gene Turnbow and Susan L. Fox. Our guest this evening has been Adam Christopher, author of Made to Kill 
from Tor Books. It is a robot noir detective novel and may be the first of its genre. This episode will air again December 6th, 2015 at 4 p.m. Pacific and at additional times throughout the coming week. See our website at kryptonradio.com for showtimes in your area. Once all the airtimes have passed, you will find this episode and others as downloads on our website and on iTunes and Stitcher as podcasts. If you are an author or other creator and would like to be on the show, please contact our production manager, Kat Carter, at katcarter at kryptonradio.com. If you would like to become a patron of the Geeky Arts, you can do so for as little as $1 a month. Visit patreon.com slash kryptonradio to join the Krypton Radio family of patrons. If you would like to sponsor the show, please email us at kryptonradio at kryptonradio.com. Your sponsorship would be appreciated. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The science officer was played by Mark Schurmeister. The engineer was played by Christian B. McGuire. The navigator was Christine Cherry, and the captain was voiced by legendary science fiction writer Larry Niven. This program and its contents, except where provided by others, are copyright 2015 by Krypton Media Group Incorporated. The Event Horizon. It's sci-fi for your Wi-Fi.